0: Welcome to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast I'm Paul Wilkinson, Adult Groups Minister Associate at the Brentwood Campus Here to talk about our text for this week, which is A Failed Evacuation, Moses Murders We'll be in Exodus 2, verses 11-25 through 25. Here we go You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. So, sort of our, our theme here over these last couple of weeks that we've been in the Exodus, and uh, even in terms of the overall strategy for the Brentwood Baptist family of churches, has been how do we as group leaders play a part in? The mission and vision of engaging the whole person with the whole gospel anywhere, anytime with anybody. And so we as teachers have the obligation, uh, the duty to be teaching the gospel as often as we can with our group members. Um, Do we necessarily need explicit references to Christ? Uh, Maybe not. Uh, I remember I had a preaching professor in seminary who said it's about training your people to think in terms of Christ more so than you know, just hurling the name out perpetually. So he would say that he's preached sermons where he didn't mention Jesus at all. And inevitably, someone would come after the sermon and say something about Jesus from his sermon, which he never even said. And his point to us was that if we're creating an ethos, if we're creating an environment, or what one philosopher I like, William Lane Craig says, a cultural milieu of gospel in our groups then as we're teaching the text, our people are going to be seeing Christ. They're going to be seeing the gospel in all that we do. And this will certainly heighten their sensitivity to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that will compel them out to do the good work of discipling others. And that's what we have to be about at the end of the day, is the gospel is the impetus for the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is that we disciple all peoples. Uh, For some in our group, that's going to mean they're going to go overseas to global missions for Many of them, or as uh, Mike Glenn at the Brentwood campus will say, uh, a lot of them are going to be missionaries where they are. That God strategically put them in a career, in a particular job, around particular people so that they can be disciple makers there. So what we're trying to do by constantly elevating the gospel through a robust and faithful exegesis and exposition of the scriptures is to help create disciples of Jesus who make disciples with Jesus. That's what we got to be after, because that's the Great Commission. So in our text today, we see what uh, radical individualism, I guess, and I'm probably reading a little bit into that, but I'll, I'll couch it two ways. So one, we see the radical individualism of Moses, and then secondly, we see what sort of going off on your own without seeking God first reaps in the deliverer's life in the shepherd's life and that's what moses really was he was the great liberator but he was the shepherd of god's people and i would say it's no different for us as life group leaders so as we go through this text i want to elevate those two dynamics is and they played it with one they they, and they intersect with one another is that moses went after this thing alone uh not in terms of the collective and then secondly he went after it without god the latter of which is the more important of the two i would say so Moses must have seen himself as deliverer in some way to do what he did with respect to killing this Egyptian supervisor. Moses, at least by this point, had begun to associate himself with the nation of Israel and the Israelite people. Uh, recall that he's raised in Pharaoh's household. So he's raised as an Egyptian. Uh, with, I assume with the knowledge of the Egyptian gods, Egyptian governmental structure, Egyptian values, and so forth. And yet, uh, he uses this strong language where we see people in our text. So Moses sees his people, it says, when he he sees this Egyptian supervisor beating one of his people. The text reads, in verse 11, Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. It says that word is most often translated brother. And so I think it is safe to say that we could think in in Moses' mind what he has going on as he's writing this now in in the Exodus story is that he sees someone beating his brother. That's how he saw it. Uh, That's how he associated himself. And then look at how they looked at Moses. Oh, this Egyptian, because he was dressed as an Egyptian. He was raised in the Egyptian. He was an outsider. So when he goes out the next day and he sees these two Hebrews fighting each other and and he's challenging them, why are you attacking your neighbor when I took out this Egyptian yesterday over this very thing? The response is, who made you a commander and judge over us? So Moses saw himself as an insider, one to deliver his people, but his people saw him as an outsider. Nevertheless, he didn't let that stop him. And he sees this individual being beaten and perhaps hastily, um, he jumps in and he ends up killing this Egyptian soldier. Um, it's not clear when he does it. It could have been the case that he did it right at that moment. Hey, get off this guy. And he shoves him and ends up killing him. Or it could be that he followed him after the beating was over and waited until they got to a, a dark alley somewhere or, or behind a building. And he, and he takes this guy out sort of to justify and deliver his people. And it it just totally backfires on all levels for Moses. So he tries to go in as the lone ranger. He tries to associate him with a people that he had no credibility with, that he had no leverage with. And then it just blows up in his face. And we can learn a lot of lessons from this failure. And we can see God working in the midst of all of it. And that's the promise that comes at the end of our text for today, is that God tells us, I've heard my people. I'm, I'm activating the deliverance here. Where to begin with all this? Uh, Moses certainly has a sense of justice. He he saw the oppression, says, I want to stop it. And so he does so by murder, essentially. Bishop Joseph Butler postulated something called lingering resentment to say, how do we distinguish between revenge, sort of hot-blooded reactions? Um, So I'll dial it back a little bit. So we're probably not going to go murder someone because we're mad or or whatever the case but how do we distinguish between those things that are hot-blooded selfish i want to get back at this um you know this wrong that was done to me and retributive justice that there are just deserts for actions there are consequences attached to actions whether good or bad based on whether those actions are reflective of god's commands and his character and butler said we look for lingering resentment, that we all get mad in the moment. That's just a function of who we are. And I don't think anger is a sin uh, when it's directed properly. We ought to hate sin. We ought to, we ought to be angry that the devil is, is, is taking people and tricking them and blinding them. Jesus chased out the money changers, right? So there is a righteous anger to be had. Um, it talks about Yahweh's anger burning. So there's a righteous anger to be had. And, and we want to know how do we distinguish that? Well, Butler posits lingering resentment. Is it the case that when tempers have cooled down a week later, uh, a month later, maybe even years later, is there a lingering resentment in us that some principle of justice as anchored in God's commands and character have been violated? And if that is present, then we can trust that, that response in ourselves insofar as we are tapped into the spirit to be retributive godly kind of justice Uh, it doesn't seem like moses did that here Uh, i mean you look at you you look at when uh, abraham wants to go into the promised land and god says to him clearly the canaanite sin isn't ripe yet Uh, or you look at god with jonah and he sends jonah into nineveh and says preach repentance and they do and god desists from his conditional threat to wipe them out if they didn't repent so we have a god who kind of functions on lingering resentment that doesn't doesn't always immediately act because he's drawing out time and calling people to himself and providing pathways to righteousness uh primarily through the the work of working person of jesus christ and now as we tap into the spirit for that uh, but always through faith right even for moses abraham uh, it's through faith through faith that God is about the welfare of his people. And this is what prompts the Israelites to call out is that there was a promise given to Abraham and that God is not going to go back on his word. So they cry out about the oppression and injustice that they're enduring under the Egyptian rule. First, it's, it's good to talk to our people about justice. out, oh, And then this plays out in a lot of ways in our Western culture. One is we have social justice movements, fights for equality, and the like. And the question is, how biblical are these movements? How biblical are these principles and ideas? And how are we as a church, who ought to be about the welfare of the city, uh, how are we to relate and participate or distance ourselves from each of those? And so if we don't have a good concept of justice, then I don't think we can act appropriately. Uh, think about conflicts within the church, where churches are broken fellowship over issues, whether doctrinal or other. uh, If we have a proper understanding of justice grounded in the holiness that is the nature and commands of God, then I think it can temper some of that so that we're fighting about the right things, that we're keeping the main things the main things and not getting distracted by, um, boy, I hesitate to use the word insignificant, but there's nothing else on my tongue right now, that we're not distracted by the insignificant things that the devil wants us focused on while the world burns so it is worth talking a little bit about justice and that can take you to some controversial places so if you go that way be ready for it but we want to ground everything in the scripture we want to ground everything in the text and um if it's not reflective of god's nature character commands etc then then it's a justice that we don't want to be part of as god's people nehemiah really gives us the right pathway to deliverance, administration, and and the rest. So Moses sees and reacts. Uh, He may have been sitting on frustration for a long time, but there's no evidence. He doesn't give us any evidence. And, And I'm assuming Mosaic authorship here. So he's writing this about himself. He doesn't give us any evidence that he sought God before he acted. And we see Nehemiah where Nehemiah first seeks God, then goes to the king. He seeks God, then goes to the king. And and Moses was really the other way around. He just sort of uh, just sort of went after it. Uh, We would say maybe not totally thoughtlessly, but it does seem very reactionary. That's just how it reads to me in the text. And then we see as he is exiled and spends this time as shepherd and then comes to what we'll talk about next week. See God in the burning bush when God reveals himself to him. Well, now he's seeking God's counsel. Now he's asking for Aaron to come with him. So now he's about the right things. Whereas here is radically individual. All uh, oh, this is an injustice done to my brother. Let me get in there and do it. So he has a bad conception of justice. He is reacting individually rather than with the support of the people. He doesn't seek God uh, in, before he reacts, or at least he gives us no evidence that he had done so. And God takes this time to mature Moses to the extent that he could um, you know, while he's in exile so that he can bring, bring him back and liberate his people but we see that Moses still disobeys in the end I mean this is why he doesn't get in the promised land in the end right because he's told not to hit the rock he's told just to command the water to come forth for God's people and then he hits the rock anyway so Moses always has this has this sort of streak uh, in him but God is able to still utilize Moses for the sake of the liberation of his people Hebrews 11 makes the point that even in the midst of all the negative i talked about with moses that there was a thread of goodness in his actions here is that he chose a life supportive of his people he chose the life of an israelite under the one true god as opposed to the wealth that he could have had as an egyptian in the midst of the paganism polytheism and the like and for that he, he ought to be elevated uh, he went about it maybe the totally the wrong way but his the genesis of his actions to support and liberate his people and to fight and choose god over maybe the comforts and ease of life is noble and we ought to elevate that so hebrews 11:24 says that by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. So what's that look like for our people? Oh, uh, in, in many of our groups across the Brentwood family of campuses, We have a lot of people that are very comfortable, that enjoy the status quo. Uh, How do we shake that up a little bit for them? I'm not sure what it looks like uh, for you in particular, but we always got to keep in mind the idea of invitation and challenge. I steal this from Mike Breen with 3DM Ministries, and he uses the example in this invitation challenge matrix of Peter when he confesses the truth of Messiah and jesus commends him and says ah on this rock i'm going to build my church he really is highly invitational elevating encouraging and lauding peter and then in in the scripture just a paragraph later peter is after hearing jesus saying that he's going to have to suffer and die peter says no way no way you're going to die i'm not going to let it happen and just as quickly as he said on this rock i build my church he says get behind me satan uh and and he does it, I think, in a restorative way because he says, you're not about the things of God. Stop thinking. You know how this is going to play out. Trust me in the grand design that I am working out for the sake of reconciling ultimately the world to himself, uh, even unto the Gentiles, which until Peter goes to Cornelius, he still seems to be ignorant that this is going to go forth to the Gentiles. I mean, look how skeptical they were of Paul. As he was preaching to the preaching to the Gentiles, as we read about in Acts. So, in our groups, we want to be invitational. We want to keep the vision of disciple making and the grace and compassion of Jesus in front of our people. We want to feed them and nurture them, encourage them, and uplift and uplift them. But if we're not also challenging them, if we're not holding them accountable to the vision of which they're a part, then we're doing them a disservice. So, yes, talk about how their new creations. Talk about how God forgives them. Talk about how God wants the best for them. Talk about how the Lord seeks their welfare and good of all those who love him. But also remind them that when they signed up for this Jesus thing, they signed up to pick up their cross daily and carry it. That, that they signed up to bear witness to the truth of Messiah. That they, like the Great Commission says, um, signed up to be disciple makers of all peoples. And we got to hold that vision in front of them and say, in the words of Alan Taylor, if we're going to do ministry well, and that's what we all are as ministers of the gospel, as we seek to disciple others, it's going to cost us time, money, and effort. And that equals discomfort for so many of us. And if we're not willing to pay that price, then uh, I would argue we're falling short of what the Lord would have for us. So we have to constantly challenge our people, who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? Who's investing in you intentionally for the sake of you investing in other people intentionally? That's going to be one of our prime uh, metric questions moving forward. And it's a qualitative question, which is a change. It's not about how many people you got in your group. It's about how many people in your group are discipling others. That's what um, I think that's what the scriptures are after. Uh, what What's breaking your heart in the world and what are you doing about it? So you, you have a heart for a certain people like Moses had for his people, the Israelites. Well, what are you doing about it? You care about the homeless? Well, what are you doing? You care about poverty and hunger in the city? What are you doing? We've got to constantly challenge our people to be about the great things of making Christ known. Who have you been sharing the gospel with? Or if we want to dial it back a bit because we understand incrementalism, right? We don't, we don't lob people in the middle of the ocean to learn how to swim. So we say, who are you praying, what lost people are you praying about? What lost and searching people in your sphere of influence, our language, of course, is live, work, and play, but what lost and searching people where you live, work, and play are you praying about? Are you praying that God will bring you into situations in which you can share the gospel with them? Uh, That's where it starts. You, You won't have a heart for lost people, and you won't be successful in your evangelistic outreach if you're not praying for lost people. And we as group leaders need to model that. We should always, in our prayers, in the group, be talking about the lost and searching people in the lives of ourselves and our groups. Uh, So challenge them. Be invitational. Be invitational. But challenge them to get out of the comfort, to to flee Egyptian wealth for the sake of the one true God and the discipling of his people. Notice the naming of Moses' son, which is where the text in part leaves us for today. Girisham. Uh, Girishum. And that first part of that word, gir, means alien. That's what the term means, alien. And the last part is very related to the word same, which means there. So his son's name is essentially alien there. And we look at the failures of Moses. So he failed as an Egyptian because he rejected their worldview and system. He failed as a deliverer because his own people reject him. And so where he may have seen himself as, look at how the Lord has blessed me, give me an Egyptian education, given me Egyptian uh, privileges and so forth, and now I'm going to liberate my people because of this. When he actually tries it, as he goes about it his own way, radically individualistic and devoid of seeking God's guidance insofar as Moses tells us, uh, he fails miserably. So he fails on all levels and finds himself exiled, really not having a people uh, in a way, because he was still seen as an Egyptian by the Midianites. When he when he comes upon them, they talk about the Egyptian that helped him. So certainly his dress and and so forth would have um, led them to see him that way. So he really is a deliverer without a calling at this point. And, and that's, to me, that would be where I wanted to leave my group this week knowing that next week we're going to talk about God revealing himself from the burning bush to the people, is that we want to create this sense of angst and this dejection that Moses had. And on some level you should say, well, he's got a family, he's got a son, he ought to be happy. But the fact that he named his son Alien there uh, sort of seems like he's longing to belong to his own people. He feels out of place, and he feels like he's failed miserably at his calling. And then what we see, though, is uh, sort of the transition from this feeling of Moses to the burning bush is that God has heard the cry of his people. And I think that's what Moses is trying to tell us, is that, A, this is what really happened. This is my story. But then, B, even though I failed, it's God alone who's the deliverer of his people. And I'm going to be the instrument of that deliverance, as we see in the rest of the Exodus. So we can leave our groups at a low point here, feeling what Moses felt as dejected and as a failure, as a rejected failure, but we can also paint a thin line of hope that God is going to be the one that delivers his people and God never fails.